Would you like to be able to start conversations like a pro? Take The Sunday World, your daily dose of what's going on. Do not consume The Sunday World if you're involved in a drug cartel, you're a politician with something to hide, or you've appeared on a reality TV show and care about others' opinions. Consume The Sunday World responsibly. Always read the stories, gossip, and commentary. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. I can kind of understand the people that described it as a, a vibe. We spent a lot of time there because we visited other bunkers for recreating shots. And we spent days underground. And you kind of get the same feeling. I would describe it as a feeling of being completely shut off from the rest of the world. You have no cell phone coverage. You can close a door and nobody can open it if you want to. The rest of the world just doesn't matter anymore. I'm Nicola Talent. And you're listening to Crime World, a podcast about criminals, drugs and the sins of the underworld in Ireland and across the globe. An underground bunker, a community of internet warriors attempting to create their own otherworld nirvana and an Irish criminal godfather afraid of the dark. It sounds like the plot of a Netflix drama and it is, but it's far from fiction. Today, I'm talking to Max Rayner and Killian Lieb, the writers and directors of Cyberbunker, a new true crime documentary to be screened on the streaming giant from November 8th. We discuss the extraordinary events that led 600 German police to the former NATO bunker high above the Moselle Valley and the Irish criminal George the Penguin Mitchell, whose presence led them there. This is Crime World a podcast from sundayworld.com. So Max and Killian, really good to see you again. And of course, we met while you were in the process of doing this documentary because our worlds collided slightly. Um, And that's thanks to a man who is described in your documentary, Cyberbunker, The Criminal Underground, as Mr. Green. And of course, Mr. Green is somebody that, uh, you know, was just a name for George Mitchell, uh, an Irish criminal here who I was looking for. So we'll get to all that. But first of all, um, Cyberbunker, The Criminal Underground. This is a, a documentary which is going to be on Netflix and it tells the story of this underground bunker in the hills above Trabantrarbach in Germany and what was going on in it. But there's a couple of key figures in it and you've had... I don't know how you've brought in everybody together for this interview, by the way. Wait till we get on to Sven. You never told me you got him. 
But it, it follows firstly the story of a guy called Herman Zent, a Dutchman. And start us off, one of you, with where uh, he emerges uh, first and what's going on in the background with the internet. Yeah. Um, so what happened was that um, during the 90s, the the internet really um, got to, to everyone. It, it was uh, something that was commercially used. It wasn't any longer in universities or stuff like that. And during that time, uh, there was a guy uh, called Herman Zand uh, who had a computer store. And uh, he basically just sold computers. It was uh, the very early days of the internet and computers were not as common as uh, as they are today. And um, he made a lot of money with that, with the computers, uh, with his store in the Netherlands. And... Um, for quite a long time, this guy, this Herman Zend, had a kind of an obsession with bunkers, with these underground uh, facilities, these fortresses. And once he had the opportunity to buy one of those things, one of those bunkers, he did. And um, this was around 1995, 1996. Uh, and he had a couple of friends, a couple of guys uh, that moved in with him inside of this bunker. And this was kind of the birth of Cyberbunker. So these people were uh, computer nerds, guys that uh, got into the core structures of the internet from very early on. They knew about this stuff way before most people at that time uh, really got what the internet meant. And yeah, what they basically did, they um, they put servers into uh, these bunkers. Uh, so they hosted websites. Like every website needs kind of a home where it's physically located. And these are servers. And Zend and his uh, colleagues, his friends, they put a lot of servers in there and they made money with it. And this is basically what, uh, what was at the beginning of Cyberbunker. And they became almost a little... We call them a little cult or a little commune. They they believe they they lived together. They ate together. They socialized underground in this bunker, and they believed that they were creating almost a new country, which was the internet. Is that does that explain it fairly? Yeah. Well, they had this. They all shared this uh, fascination for the internet and this whole new world, which kind of appeared there. Right. So it was. Um, yeah, something where new rules could be made, where it's a parallel world which opened up. So um, they took this as an opportunity to create a new space where um, of foremost uh, freedom of speech uh, could be fought for. Mm. Yeah, it's it's like it's like there there was a lot of change at this time, and these people really believed that the internet could change the world, which it did, which it did. Um, actually, but not in the way they intended. They believed there um, was a kind of whole new universe to be ex ex expanded or explored. And um, yeah, they, they created their own little microcosm there. Um, they moved in there, they lived there, and they created new projects, new business ideas. And as far as, as people told us who lived there at that time, it was... It was great. It was like a like a um, small commune of people who were yeah doing something that the rest of the world probably wouldn't have understood. And this was, of course, in the Netherlands, wasn't it? The first bunker. 
Yes, yes. It was in a little town close to the sea called Goose or Hoos. I don't know how to pronounce it until to this day. And uh, we've been there actually. Um, and it's it's really small. It's really rural. Um, yeah, you you can be on your own there, and nobody would expect something like like this in such a little town. And of course, this uh, yeah, it's the same that happened afterwards with Cyberbanka too. But um, yeah, we will come to that later afterwards, I think. And of course, for anyone listening, the reason there is bunkers in parts of Europe, and actually some of them in the north of Ireland, I'm not sure there's any in the south, but certainly there was one in the north of Ireland in County Antrim. They were there as like because of the Cold Wars and they were there as kind of a place where I suppose presidents would be brought if there was a, an onslaught or if, if countries were under attack. They were kind of bomb resistant, uh, you know, attack resistant places with heating, light, food, a place where you could survive if above the earth was under attack from whatever it was. I think this is also something that uh, drew them to it. The idea of having your own little space that you can uh, protect for yourself and you don't need the rest of the world. Um, and I think this continued um, for a few years. And they also made a lot of money, I think. Uh, this is something that they like to tell, that they hosted a lot of porn website, early kind of porn websites very primitive kind of porn websites. But uh, even at that time, this was a huge market, I think. And they made a lot of money with that. And uh, I don't know. That market must have been absolutely enormous if you think about it. I mean, previous to that, it had just been magazines on shelves. I mean, to share that in such a way all over the world, uh, there must have been a fantastic amount of money in it. And of course, this is in the documentary where we're introduced to Sven Kampuish, who tells you straight out in your documentary, we hosted porn, we had to make money. He's quite open about this. And uh, he is uh, a character that will come with us through this journey of discovery we have on your documentary to the very end. But where's he from, guys? Is he Dutch originally? Yes, as far as we know, he is. So we don't know much about um, his his early life. But what we know is that he is a programmer, someone who is, is really good when it comes to everything with computers, basically, especially when it comes to networks and internet stuff. And um, before he joined Cyberbunker, he worked uh, at a Dutch um, internet service provider called Access for All, uh, also during the early days um, of the internet when everything was still new. And he was fairly talented. But uh, of course, his colleagues always said that he was mm, kind of a weird guy even back then. But probably he knew how to do stuff and he knew how to how to get work done. Um, and at some point, um, he met Zend and he met the guys from the Cyberbunker. So he wasn't there from the early beginning. He didn't set the thing up with Zend together. Um, he joined afterwards somewhere in the 90s. But then he became a very prominent figure in this whole story. He became a very um, important part in that. And he, yeah, he, he joined the group and he he lived there inside of the bunker um, at times, and he was a yeah very close part of this small society. Now you've 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 got your hands on and you've used extraordinary footage from inside that bunker, 
I mean, if you wanted to send me to hell, you'd put me into one of those bunkers. No windows, dark. I'm totally claustrophobic. Even when they show the gate on the way into that bunker in the Netherlands, it's like it really is hellish looking. And yet people in it describe it that it was such a beautiful place. It was quiet. It was silent. You could hear your heartbeat nearly. Um, Did you go in? Did you go underground? Well, we spend a lot of time underground (laughs) during this whole process. Uh, We have seen a lot of bunkers. Um, And I think the vibe that the people that live there described um, is something that we also kind of experienced. Of course, it's uh, the first time you're going underground and you you lose the sunlight and you uh, you're in this maze. But because mostly the bunkers are really every hallway looks the same and you go around the corner and you go around the corner and you don't know where you are anymore. But um, so it's scary at first, but um, I can kind of understand the people that described it as a, yeah, a a vibe or something where you feel a special feeling of, uh, yeah, um, security, security, security in a way. We spent a lot of time there because we visited other bunkers for recreating shots and we spent days underground and you kind of get the same feeling. I would describe it as a feeling of being completely shut off from the rest of the world. You have no cell phone coverage. Uh, you can close the door and nobody can open it if you want to. The rest of the world just doesn't matter anymore. And when I went up there again after we did our shooting, I was quite relieved, to be honest. But during a few minutes underground, I could kind of understand why some people like it. Because you feel secure and safe and nobody can disturb you. But uh, I share the feeling uh, with you, Nicola, that I wouldn't want to live there or to sleep there. I could oh, never God. do that. No, I was going to say, did you spend, did you sleep overnight? No. You went, no. To, you went to a nice hotel, did you? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, probably. Okay, you should. And do you feel kind of when you come out of these bunkers almost blinded by daylight? Are you almost blinded? Does your, your, eye, your eyes and everything become accustomed to the darkness? Yeah, and you and you get all those messages, messages right? Because uh, your phone net is coming back. So you, yeah, you get all the messages that you missed out yeah, during the whole day. It's it's quite weird being underground, but yeah, they lived there, and some people really liked it. I mean, some of them really had their bedrooms in there. Um, some of them only worked there and had their offices, but a few members of the cyber bunker group really lived there. They had bedrooms, they had their TVs there, they were spending their days uh, down there. Mm. And maybe a part of society slightly isolated, like you described them a little bit like sort of computer geeks. Maybe they were people who were already isolated from what we term the normal world. So down there they felt together or something. Nonetheless, they do describe a, somewhat of a, a nirvana, this fabulous moment that the internet is becoming what it is today and they're part of it and they're creating a little universe for themselves. But it all goes uh, a little bit uh skewways when there is an explosion because unfortunately they have rented out a part of that bunker to people who are making ecstasy and uh, there's a fire and I think that's the end of Cyber Bunker 1 um, which brings us along as as Herman Zent, this, this Dutch man who dreamed it all up makes his way down to Germany 
to uh, the Moselle Valley where there is a bunker for sale um, and, and a former NATO bunker, I think this one is. And uh, this is around 2011, 2012 from memory, is it? Yes, yes. Uh, I think they sold it finally in 2013. They moved in, but they, they they searched for quite a long time to find the right bunker during those years because there are a lot of them in Germany because of history of the country. Um, but at the same time, you have to find one that's affordable and uh, that probably has a good connection to, to electricity and stuff like that. Um, and you need people who are willing to sell it to you. And uh, yeah, that uh, Dix and, and, and other guys found in, in Traben-Trabach, in the Mosel region. Yeah. So in other words, there wasn't a huge amount of them for sale uh, where he would have been able to afford. Like, sorry, do people live in them? Are, you know, these bunkers, are they used for some purpose in Germany? They were used by the military before that. But now are most of them empty, abandoned? Uh, yeah, some of them are, but um, we spent quite a lot of time researching other bunkers because we needed places to film. Um, and of course, we wanted to know how it is to be in, inside of one. And there is a, a small community of people in Germany who are almost as obsessed with bunkers as scent. And they're using it for, um, for uh, museums or for paintball matches, uh, renting them out for concerts and stuff like that. And some of them even live there. And we met a few of them. And yeah, it's an interesting small world of bunker freaks. <laughs> and some of them also knew Zend or knew uh, what was what has what has has happened. Sorry. Yes. And um, yeah, that was quite interesting. I imagine there's a finite amount of people in the world who would be prepared to live in them. Um, nonetheless, he went to Trab and Trabach, where he tells the local authorities that he wants to use it to open a internet hosting. What's the word for that? An internet hosting site, is it? Yeah, an internet uh, a, a hosting Host, server. Hosting probably. server, right, yeah. So he he sort of basically tells the local community that he's going to create employment, I suppose rejuvenate this uh, thing that has sat on top of the hills overlooking this beautiful valley below for so long. And uh, that's it. He, he buys it, he gets the keys and in he moves. And uh, along come some of his previous mates from Cyberbunker 1? Yes, exactly. There's, this is a small community of people. Um, not all of them lived uh, all the time in, inside of these bunkers, um, but they know each other and they are connected in a way. And uh, Zend had uh, some people come over that were in Cyberbunker 1 before, but there were also people um, that were only there for Cyberbunker 2. They had, um, uh, they were actively searching for people working there. They were looking for people doing maintenance on the servers or other things that had to be done on the site. And so there was a constant uh, flow of people moving in there. Some were leaving again, but there was a kind of a core ensemble uh, of people that were living in Cyberbunker 2. It was around 12 to 15 people. Mm -hmm. Now, by the time I uh, ended up in Trab and Trabach, which was 2015, uh, looking for a criminal known as Jordan, George Mitchell, who had connections with that bunker, had been a friend of Hermann Zent for some time. 
and whose presence I wasn't looking for George Mitchell because of any any bunker at all. I was looking for George Mitchell because he was gone missing for 20 years and wanted to track him down um, and was kind of vaguely drawn to that bunker just for a, a brief period while there because I knew he was he was linked to it. I had been told he was financing some of the activities in it. And um, the bigger, I suppose, takeaway for me at the time was the picture of the penguin walking through this you know, sleepy village. But at that period in time, in tw- by 2015, Zent is in there two years. He has set up um, his, his internet server uh, company and the police are actually watching him at this stage anyway. They're a little bit concerned about what's going on in the bunker. Um, we see in the documentary how they are sort of trying to fly over it and around it, but they can't see what's in it because it's it's impenetrable, of course, to um, to drones and any other sort of X-ray uh, material or equipment they might be using. So they're a little bit concerned about it, but sort of just keeping a watching brief on it. Is that fair to say? Yeah, definitely. It started when one of the inhabitants of Traben-Trabach, of the little town, was getting concerned when Zend turned up to buy the bunker. They couldn't do much about it in the first place, but there was one guy from the city council who uh, called the police because he found the, this whole thing being very strange. And this is the first time that the police um, is actively starting investigating, but on a much, much smaller level than later on. We haven't had any uh, undercover policemen by then and stuff like that. They were just watching. They were looking into the history of Zend. Uh, They were connecting with the Dutch police and other authorities to find out who this guy is. And of course, they find out a lot about his past. They find out about the ecstasy lab and the shady stuff happening back then. But at this point, they're just watching. They're monitoring it a bit. They're flying over, but they can't do much. It's the kind of thing they're just trying to understand what is happening there because it's just to kind to, to get an idea what could be happening there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And I think what happened in 2015 is that the appearance of, of George Mitchell changed something in the in the scale of the investigation and they got aware of uh things like okay this is a bit bigger than we probably thought the connections go wider and um slowly they increase the amount of um of stuff they they are doing they're monitoring the internet traffic they're um they are listening to the phones and stuff like this and a lot of more other things but I think the appearance of George Mitchell and probably also your article that changed a bit the yeah the watching brief the the scale of the whole thing. Well, all of a sudden they realise there's a, a major you know organised crime figure who is showing a big interest in the place, who is travelling up and down during the day. And of course, Mitchell, I was told, hated the bunker, so we would share that uh, sense of claustrophobia in common. Maybe it's an Irish thing, but he didn't really like, he went in once and I was told he left it like a scalded cat. He preferred instead to have his meetings in the village, in coffee shops, in bars and restaurants, which of course is 
is very helpful when you're trying to put someone under surveillance. It helps when they're above ground rather than beneath it. Um, you don't get so many opportunities to photograph them. But anyway, that sort of occurred. That was a bit of a, a sliding doors moment for all of us, maybe. Um, the police put a, a, a sort of a, a heavier investigative presence on the bunker and what's going on. And I think what culminates is this moment, which is really creepy opening scenes to your documentary, which is this this dark forest and you see the lights and the dogs coming. And of course, the police do eventually raid that bunker, don't they, Max? Yeah, well, in the end, it, uh, this is uh, where the whole investigations and everything yeah, um, finally gets its uh, yeah big, big final. Or it's, it's sort of it, it nearly starts basically there as well. You know, while at one point the raid is is an end point to part of the investigation, it's the start of a whole new journey of understanding about what's going on in that bunker. Yeah, yeah, definitely. So when the so when the authorities got in there and uh, uh, raided this bunker, this is the first time they get a look into it, right? So it's the first time they really get a sense of what was happening there over five years that they were trying to get a, a look behind these doors. So um, yeah, and this is where a whole new chapter of the whole story starts and mm. opens up because this is where. Um, the state attorney and the whole process starts. And it's a huge one. It was a very complicated case because there were so many cases and crimes that were happening there. And um, also that it is a, a hosting service put uh, a lot of problems for the whole uh, jurisdictive uh, system there. Mm -hmm. And of course, what was going on underground there and, you know, with... Herman, Herman Ghent as being one of the, Zent as being one of the, the bosses of it is this sort of uh, dark net superhighway, isn't it? There, there's all sorts of various uh, sites being hosted on it, which wouldn't be hosted on the normal internet. Yeah, this is something that uh, Cyberbunker is pretty special about, right? Because we also, we talked to customers of the Cyberbunker and um, yeah, they talked about it like it's uh yeah, it was um, like kind of legendary in the scene because they were promoting with having their data in servers in a bunker. And actually the people <laughs> didn't <laughs> even believe that that was the thing, right? Because yeah. it was so absurd. But um, yeah, and that drew a lot of people to the cyber bunker because they said that whatever happens, we will secure your data and we will never look into the service. So it's always a, a full-on total privacy. Mm -hmm. And this is what, um, yeah, kind of uh, got a lot of illegal websites and customers, like a lot, actually all of them were, or 99%, I think, um, into the cyberbunk. And what so sort of, of businesses were those people running? Um, you know, what sort of crimes, you know, what sort of uh, products were they selling? Uh, illegal and you know what sort of things were actually happening and being hosted under underground there. I think you you have nearly everything you can think of when thinking of, about the darknet. But I think the biggest part of what was being hosted on Cyberbunker definitely are um, darknet marketplaces. So these things just work a bit like Amazon, only for illegal goods. You can buy drugs there from 
um, from weed to yeah to fentanyl and and really really bad stuff. Uh, but you can also um, buy probably weapons and stuff like this or hacking services. Um, and I think drugs uh, is what made a huge amount of stuff happening on the cyber bunker. But there are also other stuff like. Uh, websites where you can watch movies illegally if you don't uh, want to watch them uh, on a streaming site or something like that. You can download illegal stuff. Um, and of course, also porn websites and, uh, and stuff like that. So nearly everything um, that you can imagine that is on the darknet is there. And of course, this led to a big trial in, in Trier, which lasted into certainly over a year. Um, and your documentary follows the people who were working there. Now, a couple of interesting observations I noticed. Um, speaking to the people of Trab and Trarbeck, you speak to the mayor, you speak to a local journalist and, and other business people in the town. I thought it was really interesting to get their perspective on it because we've always sort of just handled it or spoken about it as if this little point on the map in Germany. But actually, it's been a kind of a blight on their beautiful little village. And they talk about how this could happen anywhere. And these kind of people and this kind of thing could be going on on our streets without us really realizing. I thought that was really interesting to see the effects that this had on them. Yeah, definitely. Um, And I think it uh, helps um, to make the thing more grounded because you're talking to people who really don't live in the same reality. As, exactly. As people. And yeah, I think it's it's great to have the hairdresser and the and the mayor that give a kind of a ordinary people perspective. And I think it's really important for the for the piece. For sure. And and the idea that how their interactions with these people are just so normal and ordinary. They can sense there's something different about them, but they're kind of polite and they're living amongst them. Um and then you have that whole sense of as the people working in the cyber bunker, both one and two tell you they're living in this parallel universe, that they're not living in the real world. They're living in this bunker, in this place with rules, with rulers, because they all, of course, have titles as well. Um, and obviously tracking down Sven Kampuish, which I hadn't realized you had done. I think the last time we were talking, he was being a bit slippery and you didn't know where you're going to get him or not. But um, like he is a character that has doubled down on certain things. He spoke to you about the first cyber bunker, very blasé, said to you that, you know, porn is what funded it. And in in your questioning, quite hard questioning of him, he pretty much doubles down on even worse forms of criminality that he doesn't see any problem with giving them a platform. Yeah, definitely. Um, And this is, of course, a very difficult topic and a difficult part of the movie. Um, But this is just how he sees things. He believes in um, kind of a kind of that that he is above the law actually and uh, some of the rules um doesn't apply to to him and if you think of the latest last consequence that means that you're allowed to do anything and um that you're probably allowed to host anything on the internet Mm -hmm. um whatever it is and he doesn't have a problem with it i get a sense that's the kind that's a kind of a thinking that um George Mitchell, who would people, listeners here would be very familiar 
with him and his status in, in sort of the underworld. But he sort of meanders through this story. He leaves his mark because his presence is really what gets the police interested. But he he meanders on. But you have basically people who have a form of thinking that really means that they're open to be used perhaps or touched by these senior figures in, in organized crime, really. So it's it's quite an interesting window into how organized crime and maybe liberal thinking uh, to a, an extreme degree, liberal thinking sort of can collide with, uh, with catastrophic uh, results for victims of crime, including young children who may be used for, for pornography. Yeah, definitely. And this is something that for us, it's also really important to include in the film what the state prosecutor says afterwards, that, of course, crimes on the Internet always feel like a bit less um, dangerous because they happen on the Internet and they are digital and they are not in the real world. But in the end, these drugs that are sold on these websites, they are used somewhere by someone. Uh, and also these these images that are uh, circulating on these website, they have been taken at some some point, and there have been children exploited by this. So most of these crimes relate to real world stuff, and it's not just happening in a parallel universe. But that's the idea um, of some people that they think the internet is a separate place where there are separate rules. But in the cyberbucket story. These two worlds intertwine in a way. Mm -hmm. And of course, Herman Zent, who was uh, George Mitchell's long-term friend uh, and possibly business partner, is ultimately in jail. His appeal has recently failed, but you've managed to get a very interesting interview with him. I have to say, he's aged badly since behind bars. It obviously doesn't suit him to be caged above the ground. Yeah, definitely. I think... Jail is something that's uh, not good for for aging. I think it's 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 not a good life in there. Um, yeah, but uh, yeah, you see different, definitely a change in him. I think most interesting is when you watch the the very early footage of him in the in the first cyber bunker, and you see how how much energy he has, and and uh, how enthusiastic he is about everything, and then you can see how he behaves now. And there's definitely something changed with him. Yes. But it's interesting that he still keeps this kind of vision mm -hmm. and this kind of uh, idealism. He still got that right. And he's uh, convinced that if he uh, will come out, he will just, yeah, start where he left. So. Well, I guarantee you, if he comes out, he's going straight back to the hairdressers because, of course, he we were t we were given an idea of the kind of colouring he went for that soft honey, wasn't it? So his hair has just gone grey. If you put a bit of dye in his hair and you put him back underground, the guy's going to come back to life completely and utterly. I'd be guaranteed of that. But listen, <laughs> it's a fantastic uh, documentary. And of course... Um, I was privileged to be part of it because you brought me over to Trab and Trabach to reminisce about that, those few days that I was out there looking to track down George Mitchell. And it was interesting to see the little village when I wasn't so focused on 
achieving something. It was, I, I think I probably saw it properly for the first time and it is beautiful. And no doubt for those people that live in it, it will regain its charm and they'll be happy that the, the cyber bunker is a thing of the past and what went on there. So congratulations on the documentary. Just tell me when it's broadcast, where people can see it. Yeah, it will be released on the 8th of November worldwide on Netflix. So anybody with a Netflix account can look for it and it is Cyber Bunker the Criminal Underworld is that right? That's yes. it. Mm -hmm. exactly. Okay. Well look thank you very much for coming on today. Thank you both. Thanks. Thanks thank so you. Thank you so much. You've been listening to Crime World a podcast from sundayworld.com produced by Ian Mullaney and edited by me Nicola Talent. Research assistant is Claude Amini. If you like this show and love true crime, leave us a review. Or why not download the free sundayworld.com app for lots more stories from Ireland and across the globe. Would you like to be able to start conversations like a pro? Take The Sunday World, your daily dose of what's going on. Do not consume The Sunday World if you're involved in a drug cartel, you're a politician with something to hide, or you've appeared on a reality TV show and care about others' opinions. Consume The Sunday World responsibly. Always read the stories, gossip, and commentary.